brainchild of yours had better work for your sake. If this man is damaged, I shall hold you responsible. You know I haven't had a chance to prove the drug. Just get it right, or I'll see that it's proved on you. What's all that about? Energy from his brain. Thoughts, like sound waves, converted into electrical impulses, and finally, into pictures. Extraordinary. How very single-minded. He's not conventional. Welcome to Prisoner Worth Watching, where we're looking at this groundbreaking 50-year-old show about spies, paranoia, and politics that's more relevant now than ever. I'm your host, and I just like holding fancy society parties where I can flirt with all the guests. My co-host is Guy, who drinks my champagne but has yet to fall for my charms. Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. So I hope you have a nice suit and bow tie ready for the next party. It's going to be wild. (laughs) I can't say I have a bow tie, but uh, I have a nice suit. And, of course, I have a nice birthday suit, if you want that. (laughs) Okay, so today's episode of The Prisoner is A, B, and C, featuring the same number two we had last week in the general. Make sure to stay to the very end of the episode for an epic episode order rant. (laughs) But with that, on to our story, A, B, and C. Well, the story begins this time. Well, it begins with the the same intro we've seen before. It's a good three minutes or so. You know, it being a kind of unusual show, it's it's fitting, I think, that they take a moment to let the viewers know what they're getting into beforehand. It is really weird and unusual, though. They effectively have two openings, right? They have the opening that doesn't change with him Mm. in the car and then resigning and all that. Hmm. And then they have a second opening, which, which takes equally as long, where they have the conversation between the current number two and number six. Yeah, now, I thought I remembered you, or maybe it was Andrew Heaton. Somebody said that was the same voice each time. I, I could be wrong about that. Yeah, my understanding is that at least most of them, they brought in a voice actor who would emulate the number two. Oh, Okay. And I think the idea, and I'm just guessing, I think it was a budget thing. I think it was easier for them to bring in a voice actor for a few hours and knock out all the intros rather than have every single actor have to go through this script and kind of understand it and and everything. Sure. But I'm just guessing. And if so, that was kind of a clever approach, actually. Oh, yeah. So after the introductory stuff is out of the way, we start off in number two's office, and he's got... We've talked about the cordless phones before. Well, he's got a gigantic one. <laughs> it's big and it's red, and it's red because it's a hotline. Apparently, the hotline to number one. Something I thought was clever here, and now I don't know if it's clever or a production mistake, which is there are other little phones which are much smaller. Hmm. They're carved out of wood, but they all have these little doodads put on them to make them seem like they might be a phone, like little hmm. grill things and stuff. The red one in this scene has nothing. It is just a carved piece of red wood. Hmm. And at first I thought that was significant and I kind of thought it was clever because it sort of makes it a little more mysterious. But then in later scenes, the red phone does have doodads put on it. So now I don't know if this was a directorial decision for this scene 
or if it's just a production mistake where they forgot to glue on <laughs> this stuff this time. Well, you know the village. They're always trying to keep you off kilter. Yeah. But <laughs> I love how this phone is used throughout this whole episode because what will happen is every time the phone is significant, you get this shot where the phone is in the foreground and it's the largest thing in the room. And you'll have number two in the background being much smaller than the phone. So it oh, really yeah. gives the phone power. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. It builds up throughout the episode to the, the power of the hotline phone there. Yep. So we only hear number two's side of the conversation, but from his responses, he's being warned that he's not indispensable. And we've seen that once with a number two in the first episode. Mm-hmm. Who disappeared halfway through the episode, in fact. <laughs> and he does say, and this is something a number of number twos complain about. He's like, well, if I just had a free hand, you know, if I could just do the the normal, what's that phrase they use? Enhanced interrogation procedures. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, they just consider number six too valuable and they won't let them do what needs to be done. <laughs> yeah. There's also a funny thing with number two. It ran all the way through the last episode, The General. And it does through this. He's always drinking milk. I find it amusing because the, the implication is clearly that trying to crack number six is stressing him out and he knows he's in trouble if he doesn't succeed. And so he's constantly drinking milk, presumably to avoid an ulcer or to treat a stress ulcer. And this is kind of a little time capsule because this was filmed back when doctors still thought that ulcers were caused by stress. And milk was considered a way to soothe and prevent them. That you might remember, do you remember all those ulcer commercials when we were kids? They had all these different things you could take and everything. You know, I, I don't remember many of them. I know I, I had heard of ulcers at a pretty early age, but I think most of the shows I watched were Saturday morning cartoons <laughs> and uh, the electric company. So they, they didn't have too many ulcer commercials. You saw more <laughs> cereal commercials than ulcer commercials. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's one of those that has a musical theme that I guarantee you, you would, you would remember. Oh, what's the matter, Bill? I don't feel good. You worked too hard. You ate too much. The cheesecake made you greedy. Let your aching head and stomach hear this message from old Speedy. Alka-Seltzer, blop, blop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief it is. So. It turns out that actually most ulcers are caused by a bacteria. It had nothing to do with stress and none of the things that they were doing to, to alleviate it were going to do any good because it was simply a bacteria. And not only that, milk, which was commonly suggested to help out, either did nothing or it may have made things worse because it could actually cause the production of more stomach acid, which would make the ulcer worse. So nah. classic case but. Anyway, remember, kids, get all your medical advice from a podcast about old TV shows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, although they are doing a lot of work with gut flora nowadays, so uh, who knows? Milk may end up being the miracle cure after all. That's true. Sort of like the Woody Allen film where it turns out that chocolate and and, and meat <laughs> turn out to be the great things you get. <laughs> yeah, sure I think it turned smoking... out to be true. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's fully recovered. Except for a few minor kinks. Has he asked for anything special? Yes, this morning for breakfast. Uh, he requested something called wheat germ, organic honey, and tiger's milk. <laughs> oh, yes, those are the charmed substances that some years ago were felt to contain life-preserving properties. You mean there was no deep fat? No steak or cream pies or hot fudge? Those were thought to be unhealthy. 
precisely the opposite of what we now know to be true. After talking to number one, number two picks up a smaller phone and calls number 14, who we haven't met so far, at least in our progression. Yeah, number two urges that she should make progress in her current experiment. She had planned to do a whole week more on it, but she's got to move up the schedule. She's got to do animal testing tonight, he says. And their next scene is in a hallway. It opens up into the dark, rainy night. And two men in black raincoats are wheeling in a gurney covered in a black tarp. They wheel it in out of the rain and the darkness. Number 14 tells them to take off their wet coats and boots. The hallway leads into a lab. And the lab area is the dome room that we've seen various times before. This time it's decorated with some lab equipment. And it has a few gray partitions set up here and there to make it look different from the other incarnations of the dome. Yeah, and I feel a bit guilty pointing out the big room because I think if you don't know about it, it can kind of bypass you. And these are just really interesting sets. Once you know about the big room, it's just like, there's the big room again. (laughs) I think I at least partially caught on to it in the first episode. And if I hadn't had explicit proof for confirmation of it, I think I would have picked up on it pretty soon afterwards. (laughs) So don't feel too bad on that account. Though Gurney, having been wheeled into the lab area, we find out what's on it, and it turns to be number six. Number 14 is to test a drug on him, but it's unproven, and number two is in here with her and with number six. Number two warns her that she'd better not harm number six, or he'll see that the drug is proved on her. So she's kind of in a bind. She's got to do something, but she can't do too much. She's got to achieve just the right balance here. And we're also going to see a real arc here because I'd even forgotten, actually, that at the beginning, he's really concerned with protecting number six. Uh, you know, he's not supposed to hurt him. And we'll see mm. that kind of changes over time. Yeah. Yeah. That red hotline kind of <laughs> amps up his desperation over the course of the show. Number 14, the doctor. She has a device that converts thoughts into video, which at least the general public doesn't have even in 2021. (laughs) So uh, very advanced technology. She can actually watch what somebody's dreaming. I love it when these shows just put in a concept like that, which would change the entire world and be incredible. And so it's like, ah, we did it this time. And then, of course, you know, it'll never show up in a future show or anything like that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a neat device nonetheless. When we get a look into number six's head, which is on the big screen that always appears in the dome room from what you've said, on the big screen, his resignation, the exact same resignation from the introduction of the show, that scene is playing in a loop over and over again. He's really, he's giving it a lot of thought, apparently. Number 14 calls it an anguish pattern. Yeah, and this reminded me of this thing I've heard of called suicidal ideation, right? Where someone who's getting depressed will start over and over again having these kinds of thoughts. Fortunately, he's not thinking of killing himself. He's just thinking about himself resigning all the time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Number 14 tells number two that three doses of this untested drug of hers is the absolute limit. Four doses would kill number six. Each dose is in this huge 
syringe with a glass exterior. And they're very colorful, kind of a purplish red color. And I watched this episode with my girlfriend, who is a veterinary technician, and she just could not get over the colored liquids because she said everything that you're injecting is clear liquid unless it's something that's actually designed to kill you, like to put a dog to sleep in her case. Mm. In that case, it is colored so that you don't accidentally apply it to someone that you're just trying to give a normal shot to. Hmm. Once again, remember kids, get your medical knowledge from 50-year-old spy shows. <laughs> I wonder if they would put some coloring in things that are very, you know, maybe not intended to kill, but are very dangerous, which this, this drug apparently is from what she has said about it. I don't know, but if she says it's implausible, well, I'll buy that. <laughs> <laughs> Number six is eyes open briefly. And, you know, when that happened, I half expected he was going to leap up off the gurney. But apparently he's still out of it. He says nothing. Number 14 just closes his eyes again. Interesting thing here is earlier, you know, we were seeing his thoughts about the resignation on the video screen. When he looks at her, we get a shot on the video screen of her. And this calls back to something I mentioned in our first episode for this series, which is whenever they were showing something on the screen, that had to be recorded weeks or days earlier so that it could be processed. The film could be processed and then they could back project it onto the mm. screen. So here we're seeing her both live in the room and on the screen, which means she had to be doing the same thing <laughs> to a couple of weeks apart. So that they could film this. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. It was a slick enough effect, actually, that I, I didn't even catch it. <laughs> it yeah, it looks like it's live, right? right? Just, it's yeah. a live video feed, which is probably what they would do now. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So number 14, she's injected the drugs, and she tells number two, his mind is now yours. What do you want from it? Number two wants to know, as we've known all along, he wants <laughs> to know why number six resigned. He has a suspicion that he's got knowledge that he plans to sell to the highest bidder. Number two wants to know what number six has to sell and to whom. Yeah, he doesn't seem to have a lot of respect for number six's integrity, but I guess yeah. probably spy, you know, spies are not the most trustable people in the world. <laughs> yeah, it could be a little projection. <laughs> so, uh. Number two has three red boxes. They're narrow boxes, kind of the shape of books. And in fact, they're lined up like books on a shelf. The boxes are labeled A, B, and C. And number two indicates them with his hand. And he says, we've researched and computed his whole life. And it boils down to three people, A, B, and C. <laughs> he must meet each one of them. He says that the meeting should be in Paris. Because all of them, number six, A, B, and C, all attended Madame Engadine's parties. <laughs> and number two gives number 14 a reel of film from her most recent party. Number 14 loads it up onto a machine. It's a neat little thing because it's not like, like the old reel-to-reel -reel projectors. She doesn't have to futz around with all that. She just slaps the reel into a circular slot and the machine handles the rest so it's convenient on a crt monitor television set basically we see a courtyard and it appears to me to be the very same courtyard <laughs> where in the episode that we just finished the general the professor's wife had her art therapy meetings with mm -hmm. a fountain and so on yep 
This show likes to reuse stuff, and we'll have, we'll have more to say. Yeah. <laughs> it's decorated a little differently. It has some party lanterns hanging around, but same courtyard. Number two says, go on, feed it into him. <laughs> number 14 connects a wire to number six's head. He makes a loud gasp of surprise, sort of a <gasps> kind of noise, but he doesn't wake up. Number 14 adjusts some dials, and on the big screen, number six appears. Uh, at first, he, he appears against a black background in a dinner jacket and a black bow tie. But then the party fades in behind him, and he turns to approach it. Yeah, it's a pretty nice effect, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's well done. And then the viewpoint changes a little, because now instead of watching this on the big screen, it just becomes a full screen, so we're actually sort of at the party, as it were. Number six seems to know everyone he walks by. He's patting shoulders and greeting people. Just a very, very friendly, sociable version of number six. We don't necessarily see a lot of so far in this show. He enters a large, high-ceilinged room with blue walls, and this is the room from the episode The General, where the professor's wife kept her statues, and it's adjacent in this show. It's adjacent to the courtyard, just as it was in The General. So I'm not sure if that means both of those physical sets are actually adjacent, or if it's just sort of a coincidence. Right. That I, I'd be surprised if they were, but... I'll reintroduce a concept we talked about in our Doctor Who episodes in case there's somebody watching The Prisoner who, who didn't listen to our Doctor Who episodes. So you have what are called the Doyleists and the Watsonians, right? When you're mm. trying to figure out why something is the way it is in a story, the Doyleist approach, Arthur Conan Doyle, would be to say, well, the author was probably doing X. The Watsonian approach, taking it from the perspective of Watson who is narrating the story, is, oh, here's the story-based reason this happened. So I actually think both Doyleist and Watsonian interpretations of this are true, which is the Doyleist would be to say, well, they were just reusing sets <laughs> to save money, yeah. which no doubt they were. And the Watsonian interpretation would be to say, well, this is all being generated in his head. And he, especially in our order where the general just happened, he spent all this time in the courtyard and in the building. So He's just using that as reference in his head to have this party. Yeah, that could, could make sense. But I have two remarks of my own on that, which is first, we saw the courtyard on film as, as a film of one of Madame Angadine's recent parties. So that would, that would seem to discount the Watsonian <laughs> interpretation. And also there is another interpretation that you could have, which may, you might call the Illuminati interpretation which is perhaps the village's courtyard and this room were modeled after Madame Angadine's property at some point. So, I don't know, yeah, just throwing that be, out there. Yeah, maybe if number two had been preparing for this experiment all along, you know, but yeah, and it's funny because usually you're the one who goes with the, the Watsonian approach, so it's funny to have you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll, but but in this case we have direct evidence that contradicts it, I think, with the... The film of the party. But, you know, that's that's one of those angels dancing on the head of a pin kind of <laughs> arguments, I think. You're not meant to read that much into the show. <laughs> or maybe you are. I don't know. I think it's always hard, especially for anyone who's younger now watching these, is I think it's almost impossible to understand that 50 years ago, you weren't going to see this show again. And 
unless they reran it on television. Yeah. So yeah, there was no way for you to check these things or even to notice them half the time. Yeah. You know, I had a reasonably comfortable middle-class upbringing and my family didn't get its first VCR until the early eighties. Before that, you saw on the show when it was broadcast or mm-hmm. it was gone and that was yep. it. At the party, number six, weaving through the crowd, finally is greeted by a woman in a snow white dress with fuchsia trim. It's hot pink. It's very vivid. (laughs) And although it isn't said at this point, we'll find out this is Madame Angadine, the hostess of the whole shebang. They make some small talk. She's very pleasant and kind of flirty. Just a fun lady. I'd probably like her just fine if, if she was the hostess of a party I was at. They make small talk, then she has to go attend to various party affairs. Their parting quote is, and remember, you're mine. Be horrible to other women. (laughs) (laughs) I've known people like this, exactly. And I think this actress pulls this off perfectly. You know, she's both artificial and intimate with them, and she's always making these implications about how they should be having an affair or whatever. And I just, (laughs) she just does it wonderfully. I think she's great. Yeah, yeah, I thought she was a pretty enjoyable character. And we cut back to the lab, and there's a, there's a lot of cuts back and forth as the folks in the lab are watching what's going on on the screen, so I might not call out every single, you know, change of viewpoint. But number two opens the box that's labeled A. It is a picture of a mustached man and a roll of film in it. Number 14 loads this A reel into the film reader machine. Number two mentions that this man made world news a few years ago. Number 14 thought she recognized him from somewhere, and it was from that world news, and we'll learn more about that in a moment. And once the film is loaded, on the big screen, A appears behind number six. So they meet up. And number six and A begin talking. They've been kept separate in the past. The hostess has kept them separate. Yeah, she hasn't invited them to the same party at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) But the men speculate that tonight might be special. Yeah, and I have to say, and and we'll see this throughout, given McGowan as the conservative Catholic, I don't believe that he would have allowed this or thought it, but I have to think that the actor playing A was doing this on purpose because he is extremely suggestive throughout the episode and here you know he says oh tonight might be special and then he raises his his drink to number six and says to us (laughs) Mm. and we'll hear more later (laughs) yeah could be a bit of innuendo there who can (laughs) say (laughs) and at this point number 14 recognizes a she says he defected about six years ago yep and the subsequent conversation of the party uh, bears that out Number six and A have known each other a while, and now they are on different sides. But number six says we should still have a lot in common. (laughs) It's not clear what's going through his mind. He's probably just humoring A because, well, number six isn't really on the same side that he was before, at least to the extent that he's resigned. So now there's a lot of different possible angles here. And I thought it was interesting as part of this conversation at some point, A says, I see that you still overrate truth. (laughs) So, (laughs) which of course gets to the whole theme of the prisoner show. Yeah. Yeah. That does seem to be along with his insistence that he's not a number. Number six really does seem to care about truth. Um, at least his own value or his own 
ability to perceive truth. And you get the impression that he might care about it for humanity in general as well, although we really <laughs> haven't seen too many intimations of that. A has heard of number six's resignation, but in number six's mind, that only happened hours ago. So he's yeah. a bit surprised. So I guess the timeline here would be literally that he resigned and drove in his car and smashed the table and everything, and then drove to this party. Yeah. Now, it's a little hard to kind of know how that would work because he resigned in London and the party is in Paris and they didn't have, I don't think at that point they had the channel yet, but nonetheless, that's all dream logic, right? Yeah. And Paris isn't terribly far. I think I remember when I was looking up stuff for the Reign of Terror that it was like maybe a six-hour drive. It seems like it was about driving from Cleveland to Chicago. But you'd have to, you might have a ferry boat before the tunnel, yeah, and that right. would take time too. Now, I do have a theory here where he doesn't make a big deal out of it, but when A says he's heard about the resignation, and number six is like, well, that just happened hours ago. I think this is the first seed in number six's head that like something's weird here. Mm -hmm. Could be, could be. You know, you had mentioned earlier when his eyes had opened and he got that glimpse of number 14, I hadn't quite put that together, but that's how her face registered in his mind, which comes into play later on. But yeah, this, uh, this definitely could be one of the first seeds of doubt, I'm sure. Number six says he plans to go fishing for his extended holiday now that he's resigned. And A says, perhaps you're fishing now. What's the price? <laughs> but it turns out that number six has nothing to sell, or at least he doesn't have anything to sell to A. And number six wanders off to into the party. When number six says he's not going to sell, A says, if you haven't got a price, you must have a reason. In the lab, number two is alarmed by this. He says he must not go. Number 14 says, I can only create the situation. Number two's issue, right, is that he's trying to find out who C is, who the, who the bad person is. And if these two stop talking to each other, he's not going to find out. Yeah, he doesn't yet have a definitive proof that A isn't the, the buyer that number six intended. Then he hasn't found out what number six might be selling either. Mm -hmm. So number two wants to see more of A before he can wrap this up. Number six is in a foyer or entranceway. He's getting his coat put on. He's getting ready to leave. And then there are two attendants in, in kind of a 18th century attire, the wigs and all nine yards. They open the doors for him to go and A is out there waiting for him. Yeah. And, and I'm going to say, we see this a little bit as we go along. I think this is a case of dream logic because he just stopped talking to A, walked across the room. <laughs> they opened the door and A was standing there. <laughs> so. Yeah. Although my counter argument would be that number six did have to get his coat and put his coat on. So if, not, <laughs> if A was really on the ball. He could have dashed around and, uh, and gotten there. I don't know, maybe. <laughs> yeah. And then we have here another one of these suggested things. Cause number six is, can't you take a hint, you know, to a, that he wasn't going to interact with him. And a says, I don't want a hint. I want you. <laughs> so again, I don't think McGowan would have attended this, but I have to think this actor was playing it this way. <laughs> <laughs> could be, could be. <laughs> 
The next shot we see is of number six and a and a henchman, all three of them sitting in the back seat of a car. It arrives at a mansion, a nice-looking mansion, and the car is beautiful. And I, I guessed it was a Citroen, and I looked it up, and I was right. It is. It's just really a neat-looking car. Yeah, and A says, welcome to my country. A has brought him to an embassy, and so the laws of Paris aren't going to apply. Like, he's, he's screwed while he's here. <laughs> but that could be a double-edged sword. <laughs> <laughs> They all get out of the car, and the henchman who was sitting in the back seat with the other two, he holds a gun in number six. They very briefly start with some small talk, but soon enough, number six just decks A, and he goes down <laughs> for the count. And then he tells the henchman with the gun, you daren't shoot me. This just shows you that he, even back then, number six was considered so important that people wouldn't dare shoot him, at least in some situations. Right. They'd rather have the information than have him be dead. I like Correct. the henchman's response here. <laughs> what he does is he flips the gun around in his hand so he can use it as a cudgel and beat number <laughs> six with it. So I thought that was a clever little yeah. reaction. <laughs> it's a good little move, but it's not especially helpful because number six just ends up punching him too. And he, <laughs> he goes down, but he'll be back in a moment. A third guy comes in, and he, he does get a hit in on number six, but number six recovers, and as the third guy dives for him, number six dodges, and this third guy slides across the hood of the car. The second guy has gotten up, and he comes back for more, then he gets knocked out, and then number three gets knocked out as well. So number six has dispatched A and the two henchmen <laughs> pretty handily. And number six straightens his bow tie and says, be seeing you. Back in the lab, number two is now convinced that at least he knows it wasn't A. Mm -hmm. He's ready to go on to the next film sample. But number 14 says number six must rest at least 24 hours before the next dose. Number two isn't happy about that at all, but he doesn't dare take chances with number six's life. Uh, we get a brief shot of number two back in his office. He's just staring apprehensively at the big red number one hotline. At number six's apartment, it's morning. Number six gets out of bed. He stretches and he uh, does a little wincing and grimacing. He's evidently sore from his last night's sleep. Just outside his door, there's a flower cart. And number 14 is buying flowers from it. Number six looks at her as though she looks familiar. And he did get a glimpse of her when he had opened his eyes on the gurney the previous night. And he looks down at his wrist, and he sees the needle mark there. It's a pretty prominent needle mark, and it, the camera zooms in on it dramatically. Apparently, number six is making some kind of connection there. We don't know just how much he knows, but he's making some kind of link in his <laughs> mind. This doesn't look like any needle mark you'd ever see. I, it actually reminded mm. me of a spider bite because mm -hmm. when i've been bitten by a spider you'll have the center area and then you'll have this kind of white circle around it and that's what this looks like yeah there's like a there, there's a central mark then a pale ring and then there's like sort of another red ring around that if i remember right it's unmissable if you yep. saw him across a room and got a view of his <laughs> wrist you'd notice it mm -hmm. very prominent next we see 
he's at the old folks' home, which we saw in the first episode. And apparently the old folks' home, the lawn outside of it, is popular for the general public who aren't necessarily old folks. They just sit out there and they've got all these umbrella tables, patio table type things. And number 14, who was last night doing mad scientist experiments, is today very calmly reading a newspaper at one of these tables on the lawn. Number six joins her, says, how does one talk to someone that one has met in a dream? <laughs> she tries to brush him off, but he goes on to say, last week, number 14 was an old lady in a wheelchair. Yeah, and he really goes after her. He says, so you're new here and you're one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and number 14, she doesn't give him any satisfaction. She doesn't confirm or deny anything, but her last remark is enigmatically, we all make mistakes. Sometimes we have to. Number six looks up and he spots number two's majestic green dome above the village. And he thinks, maybe I should step in and say <laughs> hi. When he goes in, this is where I notice that the red phone is sitting there and now it does have little doodads on it. So I'll assume it was a production error, but I, I liked it better without them. I thought it was better when it was just a <laughs> wooden block that you had to project things onto. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to say it's just more mind games. Good be. <laughs> it goes in, and number two asks number six to pour him some milk. There's a pitcher and glass on the other side of the desk from number two, and it's handier for number six. So he does. He's happy to oblige. And as he hands it over, he pauses to reveal the very noticeable needle mark on his wrist. There's a brief pause for number two to take it all in, and eventually number six says, anyone who has nothing to hide would ask where I got it. Number two says, where did you get it? <laughs> number six answers, in my sleep. Yeah, I like number two. He said, oh, you must have been restless. <laughs> <laughs> Not going to give him anything. Yeah. Yeah, even though he knows quite well that he was very still <laughs> most of the night. Number two suggests that he might need a checkup. And number six says he is the favorite doctor, number 14. <laughs> With that, he figuratively drops the microphone and leaves. Yeah, and number two is obviously a little shocked that he has some idea that number 14 is <laughs> significant. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And right on cue, the big red hotline starts beeping. <laughs> yeah, and once again, they have the camera, so the red phone is the largest object in the room. <laughs> yeah. Again, we don't hear the other side of the conversation, but we do hear number two say, yes, sir, within two days, you have my word. Mm -hmm. Pressure's going up. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll find out what number two's word means soon enough. Now we're at number six's apartment. Between his visit to number two and now, apparently some time has elapsed. It's evening now. There's a maid. She's a different maid from the one that we saw in episode one, who uh, number six was very dismissive of. This maid, she seems efficient enough, considerably less tempting to my <laughs> tastes than the original maid, but... You have something against older women? She's <laughs> <laughs> not my type, that's all. But number six probably is more comfortable with a less seductive option here. Every time I see stuff like this in the show, I think it's funny because in a way, right, it's the prisoner and this island or village is supposed to be a prison. 
But this is a prison where you get a nice multi-room apartment with nice <laughs> art on the walls, a shower and a bed, and a maid who comes and takes care of things and, you know, and no yeah. need to actually work. I'm like, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'll volunteer <laughs> to be in the village. <laughs> I think uh, I think Norwegian prisons are supposed to be kind of like this. <laughs> That's true. So you could always check that out. <laughs> I think Spider-Man Away From Home actually played with that, right? Where he ended up in a Norwegian prison and they were all just having fun. <laughs> so. oh. Hi. Where am I? Municipal holding facility. They said they found you unconscious at the train yard? Very dangerous. We gave you the shirt because you seemed a bit cold. Thanks. You guys are nice. You speak really good English. Welcome to the Netherlands. <laughs> anyway, this this maid, I didn't mean to cast any aspersions on her. She she <laughs> looks like a maid I'd be I'd be glad to have in on my own household staff. She leaves a cup of something, probably tea, by the bed, and bids number six good night. He takes a sip and Almost immediately afterwards, he goes to set the cup down on the nightstand he picked it up from, but he can't even manage that. It was a very fast-acting Mickey Finn, and the <laughs> cup tumbles to the floor. Yeah, and I felt like, again, these little things he's putting together, I felt like there was like one second before he dropped the cup where he kind of realized, oh, you know, <laughs> this is what's happening. <laughs> yeah. And that would especially make sense in light of later events that mm. we'll, we'll get to. So now he's back at the party and the, the dream party. <laughs> we get a brief shot of the needles two and three in their little carrying case. In between then and the first shot of the party, apparently needle number two has been deployed. The hostess is back. Uh, originally, I thought she might be wearing a different dress, but it's it's the same dress. She's just wearing it differently. Now, mm -hmm. instead of just having the hot pink trim, she's got something all about her upper half, you know, her, her shoulders and chest. It's just hot pink satin. It's, I, I'm not up on the fashion lingo, but it's something <laughs> like a wrap or a stole, you know, it, it just, uh, a cape, something like that, but it covers her whole upper third or whatever. Well, I think related to what you're saying. Each time we go back to the party each night, things change a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Everything's not quite the same as before. <laughs> yeah. Right. And especially on the third night, but we'll, we'll <laughs> get to that. <laughs> mm -hmm. And she is asking him, cause theoretically this is still the same party as last night, right? We're, we're just continuing on where the party was. So, so the right. timeline would be, he went to the party, <laughs> a kidnapped him. They had the big fight. And after the fight, his response was to go back to the party. <laughs> That's yeah. where we are now. And she asked, what happened to your friend? He was just here. <laughs> and when he says the friend is gone, she says, well, I never did like that man. <laughs> <laughs> I hope number six at least took that fancy car for his trouble. <laughs> In the lab, number two decides time for B. Number 14 loads the film rail into the machine. On the monitor, a woman's face appears. Number two makes a remark I couldn't quite make out. It's something about her. Number 14 says she even looks like a spy or something like that. Hmm. Number two says something about, I think he says she comes from a long line of spies. That's what the, that's what the subtitles say, but 
His actual words, there's more to it than that, but that's the gist of it, I guess. She's from a family with a tradition of spies, I guess. Hmm. There's a pause, and number six is just sitting at a table being antisocial, and I think uh, number two even makes a smart remark about that, about how he's not a real party guy or mm-hmm. something to that effect. <laughs> but finally, he gets tired of waiting. He says, she should be there. Number 14 says, I think he's resisting. Number two wants her to do something, right? Like, he's just sitting there. B isn't showing up. you got to do something. And, and she's, again, mm-hmm. kind of like she said earlier, like, this is his dream. We just have to go with it. <laughs> right, right. And they'll have some interesting improvisation in a bit here. <laughs> we'll get to that. So the viewpoint changes, and it changes a lot between the lab and the party, between watching the party on the screen, as I mentioned. But now we're mostly in the party. A cute French maid comes through the courtyard past the fountain, and she's bringing an envelope for number six. So it sounds like she's more up your alley than the previous maid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, a bit. (laughs) And, uh... Madame Mangadine intercepts this envelope, but she doesn't get too nosy just yet. She only notes that it's addressed in a woman's handwriting. Mm. Number six grades it, and he's to meet somebody in the arbor. Turns out the arbor is the hedge maze. (laughs) Yeah, and of course, Madame Mangadine is pressing him on who this is, and number six says she's an old friend. And... Madam has looked at the letter so that there's no name here. And number six says, old friends don't need names. <laughs> so <laughs> it, this implies something I think we're going to see, which is this really is somebody that he considers to be an old friend and, and really knows well. And that's going to have some implications here. Yeah. Yeah. Madam Magdalene, she pretends to be offended and she says, the party is finished. <laughs> but then she smiles mischievously and says, enjoy yourself. Yeah, she, she made a clear it. implication like, oh, my guests are going off into the hedge maze, you know, <laughs> at my own party. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she thinks this rendezvous is going to be a little more intimate than, <laughs> than it actually ends up being. But having entered the maze, number six, here's a champagne bottle pop. It's B, the person whose face we saw on the monitor. She's sitting at a little table for two in the midst of the hedge maze. I liked when he hears the champagne bottle pop, he says... I'd recognize that signal anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think we all would. (laughs) Oh, yeah. The number six approaches her and and he tells her, your enemy is a very bad loser. He's referring to A, the defector, who is the man that he beat up in last night's dream. Apparently B is on his side or on the side he was on before he resigned. Number six, that is. Because A is B's enemy. So I'm not sure if all the transitive logic works out perfectly there, but we get the impression (laughs) that six and B are more or less on the same team. They begin dancing to the chamber music coming from the party. Yeah. And I was really surprised by this because as we're going to see in future episodes, as we've talked about, McGowan did not want any kind of close interaction or romantic style interaction with women. And Mm -hmm. we'll see some workarounds they did for that in the future. But in this case, I watched carefully, and he is actually dancing with this actress. Yeah. And I don't know why he was willing to do that. Maybe because this wasn't really a romantic scenario. But also, it's kind of interesting, as we said, he treats this person very seriously and familiarly, not in a, like, they've had a relationship 
or an intimate relationship way, but that they are truly people who like each other and know each other. Yeah. But I, I, I don't know. I haven't read about how deep McGowan's reservations were or what, what theological beliefs drove it and so forth. I think in addition to the fact that this woman appears to be more of a friend than a romance, there's probably also just the fact that dancing, at least this style of dancing that they're doing, is traditionally something that's expected at a high society party like this. I mean, it's acceptable to walk up to a woman who's married to another guy and say, may I have this dance? You know, right. I mean, that's just social custom. I think that's probably a large part of what it is. Mm-hmm. So like A on the previous night, B also has already heard about number six's holiday. Mm-hmm. News gets around fast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> quite a grapevine among those spies. In the lab, number two says he's far too relaxed. But number 14 checks out the oscilloscope, and it seems that relaxation is only apparent. On the oscilloscope, we see that number six is actually pretty keyed up. Mm-hmm. Number 14 says, with this kind of resistance, he'll burn up the drug in no time. Number two says she'd better do something about it. <laughs> She's got to come up with something. She's got to pull something out of her sleeve fast. And she speculates that since the films work to implant ideas in his head, perhaps sound would too. Mm-hmm. But she can find a, an obvious danger, which is... If she tries inserting her voice into the dream as B's voice, if number six recognizes her voice, he'll be jolted out of the dream and all their work on this B subject will have been for naught. A downside of him happening across her and being aware of who she is. Right. But number two is in the mood to roll the dice. He cajoles her into giving it a try. She grabs one of the cordless phones and she connects it to the film reader. Back in the hedge maze, number 14 starts small. She starts with a couple innocuous remarks about champagne. And once number six seems to be accepting that in the dream, she goes on to say, I wonder if they will kill me. Number six says he'll help. And he seems quite firm about it. You know, it's out of friendly concern. It's not just a polite offer. So the interesting thing here is that number six and B have had this very natural interaction. Mm -hmm. The first thing that's a little weird is she says, I wonder if they'll kill me, but it doesn't trigger anything in him. And then we'll see how this proceeds here. Because one of the things I think is interesting is as number 14 is providing the dialogue that B is saying, the actress who's playing B really changes her performance. And number six picks up on this very quickly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. B says they, you know, the capital T, they, want her to make a deal with them. They want to know why number six has resigned. She says, and again, this is number 14, planting the words in her mouth. She says, if you'll just talk to me about it, they'll let me off the hook. Number six is not pleased. He's starting to get some hinky vibes out of the whole thing. Yeah, I think the thing is, he knows her so well. Then Mm -hmm. he immediately says, I can't believe it's you. Are you asking this? Mm -hmm. And, you know, imagine you're at a party with someone and you, you know, you suddenly say that. I mean, it's clear that he really, really, the moment she is not the person he knows, he picks up on it. Yeah. Right. 
And number 14, she does something that's probably just compounding the error. She Mm -hmm. repeats the remark that she made earlier on the lawn of the old folks home. It's not clear why she does it. I don't think she's trying to give anything away to number six. I think it may be, it's just a phrase that she uses a lot, or at least thinks a lot. We all make mistakes. Sometimes we have to. And actually, this idea of a phrase that someone uses almost compulsively, it played a part in Grand Theft Auto V. That's how <laughs> Trevor finds out that Michael is still alive, because Michael uses that phrase. Give it up! I got him! I saw your face, I'll remember you! You forget a thousand things every day. How about you make sure this is one of them? In a robbery, and the guard reports it later on on the news. <laughs> So well, I'm glad we got our video game reference of the episode in. <laughs> <laughs> I think I may have another one eventually, but <laughs> the more anyone the who's uh, drink, playing the drinking game, be careful. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, she has probably just done a fairly significant screw up by repeating that memorable phrase that she had already used just the previous afternoon. Number six at this point demands, who are you? Yeah. I mean, basically he's not buying it, right? He knows this is not the person that he knew. Yeah. And at some level, he probably recalls that he's heard that in a very different context recently from a different person. The thugs have arrived. The, the, they who B was claiming to be afraid of number six says, you are not who you pretend to be. Mm. And then he goes to deal with the thugs. Yeah, and they have a fight here I was a little disappointed in because unlike, say, that Danger Man episode we watched or some of the other fights here we've watched where they really, really choreographed them well and you couldn't see when there was a stunt actor. In this one, it's like, oh, here's the Magoon stand-in <laughs> doing the fight <laughs> and you occasionally get a shot of Magoon standing there. But but it was, you know, it was very, this is almost Doctor Who level like, oh, we're just going to switch in another actor. And it wasn't well handled. And I, I was just a little disappointed. It was a very quick, perfunctory fight. Yeah. And that suited me all right. I mean, I already had a pretty decent fight earlier. I'm, I, <laughs> I got my fight quota in for the show. But after dispatching the two thugs, there's a third thug who is holding a revolver to B's head. Number six isn't quite too disturbed by that. Instead, he starts quizzing her. I don't believe in you. He'll kill me. How long has your husband been dead? Four years. Four years? Four years. How old is your son now? Son. Husband, yes. But there's no son. Help me, please. Help me, please. What is your son's name? That's an easier question. Number six isn't fooled at all. He leaves the hedge maze and the dream version of B is left at the mercy of the dream thug with the dream gun. And I think we, am I wrong? I think we hear a shot at some point. One of the things that really, I think, let number six know that it wasn't her is as number 14 takes over and provides her dialogue, she becomes kind of craven and desperate. Mm-hmm. It's says, oh, you have to help me or they're going to kill me. And I think that that clearly just violated who she was. Like there was no Mm. way he would believe that she would act that way. 
She'd be cooler about it if she was the real spy from a long line of spies. Yeah. Makes sense, sure. Probably that she had a certain integrity the same way he does, and she mm-hmm. wouldn't have done this begging thing. That's that's my guess. Yeah, yeah. Or at least she would have been a lot more artful about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. So now we are back in number six's apartment. He wakes up in his bed. He looks at his wrist and now he has two spider bites. <laughs> and I'll say, I guess maybe it's something about this formula or it's that number 14 is the worst phlebotomist in history, <laughs> leaving these huge, huge marks. But I have yeah. encountered people giving shots who didn't know how to do it and would sort of dig around with the needle and move it around and leave mm, you with a bruise. Yeah. So. She's pretty bad. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Every few months, I usually end up getting blood drawn for one reason or another. And almost invariably, it's just like, if you see anything at all, it's just a tiny little dot on your mm-hmm. arm. This is not that. <laughs> now, one piece of medical advice I will give to our listeners is sometimes people think, oh, I want the doctor to give me the shot. <laughs> uh don't do that. <laughs> Doctors don't give shots. They've given maybe a hundred shots in their life. The nurse or the phlebotomist has, gives a hundred shots a day. <laughs> so <laughs> if you want a painless shot, get it from the nurse or the phlebotomist, not from the doctor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good tip there. So having woken up, having the second shot slash bite, number six is pretty much on to things. And he goes to number 14's apartment and hangs out and then follows her when she leaves. She goes into the woods and she goes to the side of a, a big hill that is pretty much made of rock. And there's a steel door there and she gets in. Number six tries to get through the door, but he can't. So he climbs up the hill and conveniently finds a nice big air vent he can break into. (laughs) I feel like if the entire purpose of this village is to house spies that you are trying to interrogate, maybe you don't want a big air vent that a spy is going to find to get into, but you know, (laughs) but maybe they have a security problem on the village. (laughs) Or you'd think at least somebody would be following him on the cameras. That's true too, yeah. Yeah, you know, if they have the cameras everywhere, he should be on one of them. But yep. well. One thing I did like about this scene, just because it was a bit unusual, you know, you see people climbing through vent shafts all the time, but usually they're crawling through a horizontal vent. Or like an alien, if they go down from level to level, there's ladders in the vents <laughs> to change levels. This one, he's going down through a vertical shaft, and he's just using the tips of his fingers. There are little lips where the sections of shaft are joined together, and he's using those for purchase. It's an interesting little scene, definitely not your usual ventilation mm-hmm. shaft scene, so I, I liked it. It was fun. So number 14 spends a little bit of time in the lab, but apparently she was just here to grab something, and she leaves and number six sees her go out this long hallway that's going to become significant later and he then uses a grill there's a grill there and he he breaks through it to get into the hallway but he goes into the room that she was in which is the lab and he spends a few minutes examining the lab and i thought actually they did an impressively thorough job here you see him figure out each aspect of what's going on over a period of minutes. They could have just had him walk in and instantly understand everything, but he really works mm. it out. Oh, yeah. Looks over the various machinery, follows wires, you know, 
finds the A, B, and C boxes, figures out what the videos inside them are about. Then he finds the needles, realizes there's one needle left, one full syringe left, and he gets some water that's conveniently available, and he fills the syringe with the water. Now, the water then changes color to what was in the vial previously, which I thought was a little unrealistic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he did leave a bit of it in the syringe, but having replaced it with water, or at least diluted it with water, it should have been a lot paler than it yeah. ended up being. But yeah, he did leave a little bit of the dose in there, and I'm not sure why, probably just to keep some measure of that color and hope it wouldn't be noticed. And it's a good point because we'll see, he does have a reaction later, so it wouldn't make sense if there wasn't some of the chemical in there. So yeah, don't know if they were being consistent there or not, but yeah, I mean, some of the, some of the chemical you'd, you'd think might be necessary just for him to pull off his eventual scheme, but yeah, uh, yeah we'll, we'll get to that. So now we're back to number two's office and he comes up through the floor in that round thing he sits in. But unlike usual, he's in a dressing gown, his hair is disheveled, he says he couldn't sleep. The first thing he thinks is to see what number six is doing. So apparently in the last couple of minutes, number six has gotten out of the lab and he's walking around and the cameras are showing him walking through the woods and such. Number two is just annoyed. He's always walking. Irritating man. Didn't he ever get tired? Be seeing you. No, I'll be seeing you. And at just the perfect moment, number six turns to one of the cameras in, in the forest and says, be seeing you. <laughs> <laughs> and I got the impression here, I could be wrong, but I got the impression he was saying that to the door of the laboratory, that he was in the woods very near the lab, just leave, leaving it. Hmm. Which, uh, if that's the case, then it would argue that perhaps number two isn't the right guy for the job because he should have recognized that, <laughs> hey, he's just a few yards away from the door to the place where we're doping him up every night. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> then we skip the day. We're back in number six's apartment. It's bedtime. He's in his dressing gown. Again, <laughs> nice to be a prisoner who gets a nice, you know, nightgown they can wear. And the cup of Mickey Finn is awaiting, you know, presumably provided by the maid that we don't see. So he takes the cup, turns his back to presumably where the camera is and pretends to drink it while dumping it into the sink. Then he drinks some refreshing water instead <laughs> and pretends to pass out. When I watched this, I wondered at first, I mean, he, his passing out is pretty convincing. And I thought maybe... The bad guys did a little sneaky on him, you know, and they doped the water line too. So he was screwed either way. But I think you're right. I think he was just faking it with the water. No, well, I think he faked it. But I also think there was a moment before he drank the water where he takes a good long look at the water. And I think he was wondering, did they drug the water also? Ah, okay. Could be. And then sure. he basically took the chance and drank it. Yeah. And then again, they're kind of shortcutting in the story, which I appreciate, <laughs> you know, they just go back to the lab uh, and number 14 injects the final vial. And in the process, and I think this actress does a really good job with this. She just, it's clear she's a little upset. It's clear that she doesn't feel maybe they're doing the right thing or she's being pushed to do something that might hurt number six. Yeah. And that, that would explain why she is 
repeating this line about we all make mistakes. Yeah. She's not, she's not here because she's enthusiastic about the project. Right. It's an interesting difference between her and number six, right? He would never do this, right? He would never make mm-hmm. the mistake, but you know, most of us maybe would. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Under enough duress, who knows what people may do. Mm-hmm. The video starts up on the screen, but immediately something is wrong. It's in the wrong angle. And the point of view is spinning as if number six is drunk or high. <laughs> in the previous incarnations of the party, we heard this. Nice classical chamber music, the the music that Six and B were dancing to. You used to be a very good dancer. I still am. Are you? The music now, this is like swinging 1960s stuff. This is a, this is a whole different kind of party. so wild, darling. It will end in tears. All the best parties do. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> Turn it up. It's dreamy. This is a dreamy party. <laughs> yeah, it's a good catch. I didn't even notice that, but yeah, good one. Yeah, number 14, seeing this camera problem says the strength of the drug is too much. I've got to stop it. And now we see this arc because, you know, at the beginning, number two was like, if you hurt him in any way, you're the one who's going to go down. And now number two says, no, don't do anything. This is our last chance. So he's willing to put number six's life at risk, even though that would violate Mm. the instructions he got. So he's going off the reservation here. Yeah, he's going for broker. (laughs) And number 14 says, well, it's your head. (laughs) And number two says, I'll worry about that later. And my feeling as we go along here is, yes, he is worried that if he doesn't crack number six, he's going to be punished. But I actually think he really is getting obsessed. He really has gotten to where he wants to know the secret. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's understandable. I mean, it's presumably, at least from the viewpoint of these people who run the village, it's uh, it's got to be some big momentous secret. <laughs> and number two has spent so much time wondering about it yeah he's he probably is some kind of obsession with him at this point mm-hmm. and now at the party number six is acting very different he's kind of smug and he's walking through and people are sort of bumping into him and the camera is still rocking back and forth and there's a really interesting little bit which is there's a woman with her back to him and it's b's very distinctive dress we didn't describe her dress but it's this sort of purple striped dress that you would recognize mm-hmm. anywhere and yeah. so he says to her from behind her back haven't they killed you yet? Clearly, in a, again, a kind of smug, ironic way, because he knows that things are screwy. And the mm-hmm. woman turns around, and it's not B. It's somebody else. <laughs> One of the things I like about this, and I think the prisoner is at its best when it does this, they don't explain it. They don't have more dialogue. You have to remember that that was her dress. Yeah. And then they just move on, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and then the madam approaches. And she's a little more wacky too. And she's talking about the party and she says, it's so wild, darling. It will end in tears. <laughs> Number six says all the best parties do. <laughs> <laughs> and then he kind of goes bonkers and he starts shouting about how dreamy this party is. And, <laughs> and this is like, I think my favorite part of this whole scene, maybe in the episode is again, the, the camera angle is all wacky. Number six sees a mirror on the wall and the mirror is at an angle. And he Mm -hmm. goes over to the mirror and he grasps it and he starts correcting it. And as he corrects it, 
the camera angle corrects. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, yeah. I just think this is really wacky and bizarre. And I really enjoyed that. <laughs> well, yeah. My, my guess would be that in the broader narrative or whatever you want to call it, probably the remarks about the dreamy party and, and straightening the mirror, those could be techniques that he was taught or learned over the years for dealing with psychoactive drugs, <laughs> for ways of clearing his head, orienting himself, and so on. Just a guess, but it, it seems to <laughs> fit with what's going on there. Mm -hmm. So now number 14, so there, this is our third night. And so they've done A and B and now they're trying to do C and she needs C's picture so she can insert it into this. But number two says there isn't a picture. They don't know who C is. All they know is he's known to be French, known to attend the madam's parties in disguise and to be a colleague of number sixes. The C box was the first box that he opened when he was running around the lab. And it was evident when he opened it, you could see there was no film rail in there. There mm. was just a piece of paper. I'm thinking he probably read that piece of paper and he used that to, as part mm. of his preparation for tonight. Yeah, good catch. I didn't notice that. So number 14 is stressed. Like, what am I supposed to do? I need this person's picture. And number two says, look, it's a process of elimination. Sees the only one left. Must be at this party. Number six is going to find him. So let's just wait. And then the madam introduces number six to an older woman. One of the things I like about this episode in particular in these shows is that while they do have some of the sexy younger women we've talked about who seem to be a little more in your, <laughs> your ballpark, <laughs> we have these older women who are just, you know, kind of normal people. And I, I always like that yeah. in shows. I, I don't want everyone to be a model. Yeah. Probably after some of Madame Agadine's champagne, <laughs> you know, Madame Agadine could sneak off with me for a little while somewhere. <laughs> so this older woman says that now that number six is free, so everybody seems to know about number six's status, <laughs> she knows of something he could do that would pay well. Unlike previously, he starts expressing interest in the possibilities. And this is a little weird. She gives him her earring. And she says, number six, I'm sure it's your lucky number. And at first I thought mm. maybe she, her earring was like a die or something that she'd given him. And then I checked and it wasn't, it was just like a normal kind of diamond earring. Yeah. A big diamond. <laughs> yeah. But what happens is number six turns around and like two feet away is a roulette table. Now we haven't seen a roulette table. Like, again, this kind of dream yeah. logic, right? And he puts the earring on number six on the table. Mm. And then the woman disappears. Number six, surprisingly, comes up as the next roll of the roulette wheel. Funny little bit. The, it's not the croupier, you know, whoever's running the roulette table mm -hmm. takes the earring and, and is appreciative of number six for giving him the service gift or whatever. So I think it's one of those cases where he takes it as a, a bonus. Yeah. What he gives number six is a big skeleton key. That was the, the win that he got from this. Yeah. And number six starts walking around the room, holding on to this skeleton key. An amusing little production thing I noticed. He was tapping the skeleton key with his other finger to the rhythm of the music at the party. Mm. <laughs> and that's actually interesting because the music wouldn't have been there. Mm. Right. They would put that in and post. Oh. So it's just interesting because in order for him to tap the key in beat to the music, they would have had to cue those things up. Just one of these little things that I noticed. I wonder, I, I've seen 
like in movies where they show where they're about the filming of other movies. Mm -hmm. I've seen things where the director will yell playback and they, some music starts playing. So I mm -hmm. wonder if they might've had some kind of music that just got suppressed or dubbed over or something. Yeah. Could be. Later. Yeah. I, I don't know. Suddenly a hand with an equivalent key shows up and it is attached to Madame Ingadine. Hmm. And number two from the labs is it can't be, because you know, the implication <laughs> here is if she has the other key, she must be C. And Madam says to number six, it took you a long time to sell yourself, darling. <laughs> <laughs> and he says it took a lot of thought. So looks like he's ready to, to pull the trigger <laughs> and sell uh, out. Don't do it, number six. <laughs> don't do it. Number two says to number 14, get her information. We're going to bring her to the village so we can see what's up with her. And this is interesting because we had this question we talked about, I think, from the first episode. Is the village something that exists that they bring people like number six to, or was it created in order to crack number six? Yeah, I'm getting the impression so far that it's a large enough scope yeah, with, with enough funding necessary to keep it going that it's probably used for a number of purposes. Yeah. And this is evidence in favor of that, right? Number two yeah. saying he's going to bring Madam here would seem to apply that that is the purpose of the village. And of course, there probably will be contradictory things as we go along. So it's always, you have to make your own choice. <laughs> All right. Madam and number six walk outside and they're walking along and she tells them this is a one-way journey. She asks him if he has the fare. And he says, yes. And he pulls out an envelope from his jacket. He has papers from London. And we don't see it, but they reach apparently a door and she says, well, you can go back, but once you go through this door, you can never return. And then we watch them simultaneously inserting keys into locks on this kind of very ornate door. That's an interesting little thing because probably the most familiar use of the double key system <laughs> that I know of for movies and whatnot is the uh, nuclear launch. Yeah, mm. you've got to have two guys with the keys, but I'm sure that's used in a lot of other applications too but it's just an interesting yeah, but this connection. is again one of those kind of dream logic things because who's ever seen a normal door that had two locks for two different keys on it right not right i think it is a combination of, of what you're talking about and sort of dream logic of this is really serious so you have to have two yeah. keys <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now in the lab and this goes back to the idea that there probably was some chemical in that water because number six is hyperventilating and really having a physical reaction and there's nothing about this that implies that he's faking it you know he really does seem to be yeah. having this although remember that on the previous night when he was resisting even though he seemed relaxed the oscilloscope was really freaking out so there may be some internal resistance that's really taxing him even though he seems cool as a cucumber yeah, and on the screen, his camera point of view is just spinning in circles now. Mm. And then he, in the lab, he passes out. And number 14 holds a container that's theoretically an oxygen supply over his face. And again, my girlfriend watching this, being the vet tech, she's like, there's no oxygen source. Because <laughs> it's just a container. There's no, like, tube coming up to it or anything. So if it was the oxygen in the container, that would be gone in about two seconds. <laughs> well, maybe there's like an Alka-Seltzer oxygen tablet they drop in <laughs> yeah. and it just fizzes a little. <laughs> so number 14 is like, look, we can't go any further. He's at his end. And now number two is really over the edge. He said, nope, we have to do this. And she says, well, look, we know who C is. And he's like, but we don't know what number six was selling. So again, he's kind of obsessed. 
then he's willing to risk killing number six. So number 14 gives number six a heart stimulant. Seems like a bad idea when you're freaking out and hyperventilating, but okay. And we see that Madame and number six are driving through Paris. Number six asks where they're going, and Madame says to the summit to turn in his papers. And he seems a little surprised, not to you. And she says, even I work for someone. But who she works for, she says, has never been seen. She's never seen him. No one else has ever seen him. And number two is thrilled because he now has C. Madame is supposed to be C. And here's another person that no one knew about. So he's about to discover this. Number 14, again, in kind of a deadpan, sort of cynical way, she says, you'll have to call him D. (laughs) (laughs) I just liked how she did that line. (laughs) And Madame and number six stop in front of a cathedral-like stone building. And Madame says she has to get back to her party. So number six goes up to the doors of this building and he dramatically opens them. And instead of seeing a building, what we see on the other side is a street with a bunch of other buildings. Yeah, this is another video game reference (laughs) because him going through that tower and finding a street, it reminded me of a town. It's an actual town in Italy. It's called Monteregione and it's in the Assassin's Creed games. It's a very small town, but it's got walls all the way around it with towers and so forth. But that doesn't really fit here because from the outside, we didn't see any wall. We just Mm -hmm. saw a tower. But that popped into my head once I saw that there was a a whole city street (laughs) on the other side there. Yeah, so the street is empty. It's dark. Someone he can't see says he's glad that number six could come. Number six says, I want to see you. I've been dying to see you. I thought this is a really interesting line because that's true, right? I mean, he's been being drugged and these drugs are putting his life (laughs) in danger. So he's actually making a very accurate statement. Yeah. Eventually a man in a top hat comes out and a cape. And this is not one of the really tall top hats we've seen, like in the Mm -hmm. intro to the show. This is a much more sort of tasteful gentleman's (laughs) top hat. Yeah. And his face is covered in a black cloth mask. And They have a conversation and number two in the lab is really, really fascinated. He really wants to know who this is. Number six and the stranger talk and number six refuses to turn over the papers he has until he knows who this is. He says, I've never liked secrets, which is a little funny for being a spy. (laughs) And then number six gets very performative and he says, I want to know who I'm selling out to. We must all know. And the stranger says, does it matter? And number six says, it does to them. We mustn't disappoint them, the people who are watching. And when I've watched this before, I took it just very literally, right? It is that he knows that there are cameras. He knows that the number two and number 14 are watching. But this time around, I realized there's actually multiple layers here, possibly, because we have this unknown person and the viewers want to know who it is. Well, in the context of the show, The Prisoner, The unknown person is number one. Right. And the viewers are us, and we want to know who number one is. Yeah. So this is interesting. And when he's talking about, oh, you must be revealed for the sake of the viewers, (laughs) this may be a commentary (laughs) on the show itself. Could be, yeah. (laughs) Then with the strangers back to the camera, number six unmasks him and says, I knew, of course. But now show them. (laughs) And he spins the stranger around to reveal it is number two. (laughs) (laughs) And so big question here, you know, just how surprised were you that number two was the stranger? (laughs) (laughs) 
You know, this would normally be the sort of thing that would catch me flat-footed. But in this case, as soon as you get a good view of his masked face, you can see glasses reflecting under it. And for some reason, that tipped me off. And I was <laughs> I was 90% sure it was going to be. Uh, right. So normally, they would have caught me, but this time I got lucky. It's a number two in the lab is devastated, literally stumbling around, not sure how to deal with this. Number six goes to the doors that he had come through previously, opens them again in the other direction. And now he is looking out over the village and this really bizarre and interesting sequence here where number six then begins on the video in his head, walking through the village, making his way to the lab. And so we see him go through the forest and go to the hill, the rock hill, and then he enters and there's that long hallway before you get to the lab and he's walking down it on the video. And it's so effective that even though the real number six is literally laying in front of them, both number two and number 14 turn and look at the door, expecting him to walk through. (laughs) (laughs) And I think as viewers, we expect him to walk through too. It's a very strange experience. Yeah, yeah, I was, for a moment there, I wasn't sure what to expect. You know, I was a little, little minorly disoriented. <laughs> <laughs> and he does walk through, but in his head on the video. Yeah. And he walks in, and there's another number two and number 14 in there. And the number six says to number two, I owe you an apology. I forgot to give you this. And he walks up and hands him that envelope of papers. And the number two in the video excitedly opens it to see what's in it. And it is vacation brochures. (laughs) And the real number 14 in the lab says he was going on holiday. And the video version of number six says, I wasn't selling out. That wasn't the reason I resigned. And then again, another bizarre little bit that I really like the video. Number six walks to the same slab that he, in fact, in reality is laying on and lays down on that slab and smiles. (laughs) And then the video returns to the repeating loop of him resigning. Yeah. We get once again, that shot of the red phone in the foreground dominating the room. Number two is behind it in the background and the phone starts ringing. (laughs) I've been trying for hours to figure out. This reminds me of some scene from a TV show or a movie where it ends with a phone ringing and it's too late, like somebody isn't there to pick up the call or there's, for some reason, just the very fact of the ringing phone is like a sinister, awful implication of some sort. And I just can't think of what it is, but we know in this case, there is an implication that number two is not in good graces of his employer right now. Yeah, he's been told earlier that everything is at stake and he has to succeed and he had like two days to do it. And now he's getting this call and we're at the end of the episode. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about this story. First up, what what do you think of the writing? Oh, I thought it was good. I mean, it kept me interested the whole way. Yeah, some of the characters had their interesting little angles. Number two, being increasingly worried through the whole thing. And number 14, having her occasional evident qualms of conscience. And uh, Madame Engadine, I thought she was just a fun character. I enjoyed it. Writing, I would give a thumbs up to. (laughs) Yeah, and I just say, I have evolved on this. My 
recollection of it from the past was I found it a little bit implausible and funky in some way. And, and I didn't take it too seriously. And this time around, I think I was really wrong about it. I think I can't point to a single bad line of dialogue. There's actually mm -hmm. some really clever dialogue. As you say, you have these different arcs going on with the different characters. So now I, I think this is actually really, really top tier episode of the series. Yeah. Yeah. Really the thing that stands out as being really implausible would be the thought video monitor, you know, which, uh, <laughs> as we mentioned earlier, we still don't have the technology for that today. <laughs> at least not that, not that we know of. <laughs> We may all be living in the matrix. <laughs> could be. Yeah, that could be. But all in all, I thought it all hung together pretty well. And it did, did give number six an amusing opportunity to show off his spy talents. <laughs> yeah, he got, because he's at this party and he's sort of flirting and doing other things and interacting with people in different ways, especially B, the, the woman he clearly really cared about. You do get to see a different side of him. Even... In the last one where he's acting all weird, that's not something you normally see from Patrick McGowan, right? So, mm, yeah. You know. Yeah. And, uh, I, I think part of that's, part of that's the drug, part of that's not having a full dose of the drug. So he's not <laughs> fully immersed and part of it is trying to wake himself up just enough to control the dream, yeah. but it, it all, uh, it worked well for, for me. Yeah. How about the actors? What do you Oh, I liked them a lot. They, uh, they're really, uh, I'm thinking A, B, C was Madame Ingridane. And yeah, there's, uh, I can't really pick out a clinker in the bunch. I mean, I think they all, uh, they all did well. I, as far as I could tell this number two, I, I enjoyed him, although I have a suspicion that he's not long for the village. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I'll spoil things and say, you're not going to see him again, <laughs> De uh, okay. depending on the order in which you watch these episodes. As we yeah. <laughs> I think his name's Colin Gordon. It's Colin something. Anyway, he, uh, I think he's great. You know, we saw he, between the general and this, he really showed a range and mm -hmm. I think he was very believable in the general. He starts out, he's very confident. He's going to break this guy. And by the end of this one, he is just destroyed. Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah, I thought he was great. And I, I again, uh, sometimes you have these stories, especially with TV shows where they kind of got to go with whatever actor is available. And there'll be maybe one or two actors or side characters or something who really can't kind of hold their own. There's nobody in this episode who doesn't work, right? Even the ones like ABC who just have a few minutes. They give you a full personality and performance in that time. Oh, yeah. How about the actual mystery? Again, you, I mean, so you said, you know, literally in the moment before he was unmasked, you could figure it out. Do you think there's any chance you would have guessed earlier on? Here's the thing, right? Technically a mystery where he's going to uncover who is the person he sold out to. And of course, he's not really uncovering that. Hmm. He's faking it, but there's the question of, would you guess that that was going to happen? I guess <laughs> until we got the first close up of the mask and I saw the glasses underneath, I had no clue. Yeah. So yeah, in that regard, the mystery was good. Of course, my, my larger scale objection would be that once again, we don't really learn anything in the end. Well, we do <laughs> learn, 
We do learn that he wasn't selling out, or yeah. at least that yeah. he claims that he wasn't selling out. So we did get that fact, which is something. You know, yeah, I don't the, think we would have thought that he would sell out, but it is a piece of information that we didn't actually have before. Right? Yeah. So I enjoyed it. I thought it was good enough, short of answering all the questions that have been brought up. <laughs> Which probably a lot of those questions I'm guessing are never going to be answered, but you don't <laughs> have to confirm or deny that. Yeah, it was fun, and the, and the and the reveal was fun, even though I had guessed it a little bit beforehand because of the glasses. It was at least satisfying to see that I actually guessed something right for once. <laughs> One thing I've always found mm-hmm. unbelievable about the intro and then about what they show here is like, oh, so his plan once he resigned was to go on this kind of, you know, vacation tour around the world to go to Greece and go to all these other places. Like, yeah. I just don't quite buy it that somebody, the intensity of number six is just going to go sailing around the world and, <laughs> you know, have his vacation brochures and, <laughs> You know, though, yeah, to play devil's advocate, it could be that that was a deliberate attempt to turn over a new leaf. You know, there's, yeah, we didn't yeah. really touch on it, but there's that dialogue between him and B where he says he's, he was going to take a vacation to think. And she says, oh, I can't stand thinking. She can't stand time alone and so forth. It's possible that his vacation, perhaps even his resignation or sort of a deliberate backlash against a similar tendency in himself like i'm going to force myself to learn to stop and relax and think (laughs) yeah i'm not sure it would have worked but i can buy that (laughs) and going back to beegs i I really like that character and the way the actress portrayed her and the fact that they have this very sincere relationship and i think you see there again one of the themes of the show here's someone he really really does believe in And she turns out to betray him in the context Mm -hmm. of this story. Not that the actual person really would have, but the person he's interacting with does. He really is in the situation where absolutely no one can be trusted and what that would do to you. Oh, yeah. And he finds that someone's using her as a puppet, which would just be infuriating. Mm -hmm. You know, that's... (laughs) Having worked at a major company that many people have heard of and dealing with security things at the company. One of the things the company never wanted to talk to employees about was we would talk about, keep your passwords safe and do this and that, and the other thing to keep the company information secret. Hmm. But what the company knew they couldn't do anything about was let's say some major international <laughs> country or organization wanted to get into your system. Well, they can show up at your door and point a gun at your head or point a gun at your kid's head or your wife's head or whoever, mm-hmm. and you're going to let them into the system. Yeah. And there's nothing anyone can do about that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's kind of to some degree, I guess, what he encounters here. There's nobody who can't be turned in one way or the other. Yeah. And I think, don't, don't they even say that at some point in this episode? Like everybody has a price or some, mm. something to that effect. It, mm. It's brought up somewhere. Yeah, that's always a danger. The the social engineering way of cracking the password, I think, is what it's called. Yep, yep. All right, so obviously the final question here, is it worth watching for a modern audience? Oh, I would say so, yeah. I I got a kick out of it. I'm uh, really thoroughly enjoying, uh, well, this would be the third episode I've Mm -hmm. seen now, and so far they're all all solid. I'd, I'd recommend them all. Great. 
Okay. Next up is going to be what the official order says should be the second episode, but everyone is crazy. <laughs> and this is the perfect position for it. And that is the chimes of Big Ben. So we will see you next week. Time for my episode order rant of the week. <laughs> so as we've <laughs> discussed, there's no canonical order for prisoner episodes. And worse to me, the default ordering you'll find on DVDs and Blu-rays is crazy making. It's insane. <laughs> and I wanted to go over this a bit and just give people an example of the kind of things if you're me and and we're ordering a series like this and, and you're going online and looking through forums, you know, the kind of stuff you have to juggle and deal with to try and find the correct prisoner episode order. So as an example, the default order has today's episode, A, B, and C, as the third episode of the series. And it comes way before the general. The general comes like a half dozen episodes later. And the general, of course, being what we watched last week. So guy, having just watched the general and then A, B, and C, can you spot any problems with putting A, B, and C before the general? <laughs> well, the most obvious one would be, uh, if the phone, the number one hotline in the last scene, if that was ringing to tell number two that he's fired or that he'd better have some results ready right now, then number two's appearance in the general later on wouldn't make sense. At least this number two, the actor who's playing. Right. Yeah. And, and to take that further, I mean, they made it clear through all of A, B, and C, right? You have like two days. It's all over. Clearly number two is freaking out. He knows it at the end, he gets the call and then the general would come after this and he's all confident and ready to go. So not only has he not been fired or shot, <laughs> but he's ready to go where he's been destroyed by number six at the end of this episode. Right. And not only that, you know, very intentionally, number six is implied. So it's not only that he didn't crack number six. That happens with lots of number twos. Mm -hmm. But number six is implied that he's in on this whole thing. And there's no way that management isn't going to be like, wait, what's going on here? You know, we got to figure this out, you know, et cetera. They're not going to trust mm -hmm. number two to put him in charge again after number mm -hmm. six has said he's the guy he was selling out to, right? Yeah, yeah, there is that. It didn't even occur to me that, yeah, since he saw fit to bring him into the dream, then probably some higher-ups are going to review that and wonder. I mean, if they were astute enough, they could figure that it was all just him just having a laugh, basically. <laughs> uh, you're just messing with number two's mind. But they, you know, superiors being what they are sometimes, <laughs> they, they could very easily use that as justification to be suspicious of number two. Yeah. Yep. It makes sense. Right. So now I'm try a little audio experiment here. And this is kind of like the Perry Mason, right? You know, <laughs> what Perry Mason would do that happens in no actual courtroom is at the end of the trial, he would suddenly have a new witness or new piece of evidence come in and solve the trial. Mm. Right? 
So I think in my favor, and again, I'll torture you a bit by not telling you exactly what to listen for, but I'm going to play, you know, at the beginning of each episode, we hear number six and number two having this basically same conversation, but sometimes a little Mm -hmm. changes to it. So I'm going to play first the intro for this episode, ABC, you listen to that, and then we will listen to the one for the general and see if we can detect any clues related to the question of whether the general comes before ABC or not. So first one is ABC, mm-hmm. the episode we just watched. Where am I? In the village. What do you want? Information. Whose side are you on? That would be telling. We want information. 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 You won't get it. By hook or by crook, we will. Who are you? I am number two. Who is number one? You are number six. I am not a number. I am a free man. <laughs> okay, so hopefully this won't be too tedious. But now I'm going to play the full one for the general last week's episode. And let's see if okay. you can pick up a little clue here. <laughs> hmm. Where am I? In the village. What do you want? Information. Whose side are you on? That would be telling. We want information. 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 You won't get it. By hook or by crook, we will. Who are you? The new number two. Who is number one? You are number six. I am not a number. I am a free man. Mm. So as a hint, there was like a one word difference (laughs) between these two. Did you spot it? I think I caught it. The new number two. Yeah. In the general, and I'll, I'll play the short version of these for anyone to catch it. In the general, he says he's the new number two. Who are you? The new number two. Mm -hmm. And in ABC, today's story, he says, Who are you? I am number two. So I present my Perry Mason piece of evidence (laughs) that I think clenches it. Not only does it make no sense for the general to come after ABC, But the fact that the general says he's the new number two and ABC just says he's number two, I think kind of clenches the deal. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, uh, I think I'm persuaded. (laughs) But now just to give everybody the full story, here's the frustration when you try to come up with an order for these things in ABC today's story, we get this. I'm not tired. I slept well. Good. We don't seem to have seen a lot of each other. I haven't seen very much of you. I don't spend all my time spying. Don't you? Your predecessors did. Mm, I have other things to do. 
So here's the problem with this. He says, your predecessors did. Well, in my ordering, you know, where I want the general to be the second episode, that means there was only one, well, I guess two, because we, we did have two number twos in the first one. So hmm. you have to decide whether you consider Arrival, the first one to be kind of one number two or, or two, but, you know, it does, but I'm saying when he, when he says your predecessors did, it is implying that there were a bunch of people. And so yeah. you could use that to say, it doesn't make sense for the general to be number two, that to be the, the second episode. Yeah. Yeah, although, as, as you said, the, there were two different number twos in the first episode. And another thing is that by the beginning of the general, number six has already had some time to acclimate to the village. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got credit units, he's sitting at the cafe and so on. So there could have been another number two in there for all we know. Yeah, you could assume there are stories we didn't see. And here is another one. Uh, it, it, and this one gets again to whether the general or A, B, and C comes first. You know, I think it's pretty clear the general comes first. But in the general, the first one, we do have this piece of dialogue. You playing truant? Well, just um, doing a little homework. I didn't ask you to I found you. You don't have to explain, my dear. Number six and I are old friends. I can recommend him as a thoroughly zealous student. So, in the general... Number two calls him an old friend, but theoretically, this is Mm -hmm. the first time they've met. Could be. I mean, is there anything that actually says that that's the first time they've met? Or is that just... Well, he says he's the new number two, right? Well, in in the intro, yeah. But, yeah, it isn't clear how, you know, where the intro is taking or where or when the intro takes place. You know, the intro couldn't even be just kind of a stylized thing since, I mean, you don't need to have that same conversation 17 (laughs) times. Well, and, you know, another thing I think you could say is that maybe they knew each other before number six was in Mm. the village. So it could be. So all of this is just to show, like, if you are trying to come up with a canonical order for the prisoner, these are all the little details that you have to work with. Oh, yeah. They're always going to be something that fight against you. And there's always going to be something you have to sort of ignore <laughs> in order yeah. to make your order work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I think so far, I think, I think the evidence is in your favor on this one. Now there may be things in future episodes that retroactively screw your theory yeah. up, but so far <laughs> it seems, I, I think the potential objections that you've listed aren't necessarily big objections i'm very confident in saying the general comes before abc and that these two episodes should go together and not be split up Mm -hmm. but i think there's a much you know stronger argument to say that well the general isn't really the second episode and we'll see some other things as we go along that comes more into the other aspect of deciding the order which is for myself anyway I'm not really trying to find the order that is completely logical in terms of all the statements in the show. Because first of all, you can't, as we've said, there's too many contradictory Mm -hmm. statements. But second of all, I would say even if the creators intended a certain order, that order might not be the best one dramatically. And ultimately, Mm -hmm. what I'm trying to accomplish, and, and, you know, hopefully by the end of this season, it will have worked for you. It seems to be working so far is that the progression of the story 
is satisfying and makes sense, even if there's some little inconsistencies in the actual stories about, mm-hmm. about the order. Makes sense. So with that, once again, though, I will say, you know, I'm the, the one person on the planet who knows the perfect prisoner order. So keep listening if you want to find <laughs> out what that is. And, uh, well, this isn't the time or place to mention it, but I read some interesting things about people who are suicidally inclined. Well, what the hell, I'll put it in and uh, you can always chop it out. The interesting thing I read, then I'm not a doctor, but the thing I read was that oftentimes people who are suicidally inclined, they get the notion that they are contaminating the others around them. They're cursing them, dragging them down in some way. So... So, whereas a person less suicidal might look at it and see, well, why would you hurt all the people who love you that way? Uh, you know, the person who's actually considering it actually has a, a form of thought that tells them uh, they're better off without me. And that's, hmm. that's how that often works out. So, I always found that interesting ever since I read it. I don't know how often it's applicable, but... <laughs> At least in some cases it is. Uh, mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's that's just a side note. You see, you 